Welcome to Tacoma Arts Live's podcast series, Reflections of Tacoma, where we will examine key events, people, and places in the history of the South Sound and the echoes of their impact both in our own time and how they reach out and affect our region to this day. I'm your host, Jamika Scott. I use she, her pronouns. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Tacoma Creates, and today's partner, the Asian Pacific Cultural Center, with special thanks to the Tacoma Public Library Northwest Room and On Purpose Recording. Tacoma Arts Live and I want to respectfully acknowledge that we gather on the traditional lands of the Puyallup people and pay our respects to elders both past and present. On today's episode, we'll examine the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II through the experiences of the Tanbara family. Joining us are siblings Marilee and Greg Tanbara. Before we dive into the story of the Tanbara family, I want to give a little bit of historical context. The first Japanese resident was recorded in Washington state in 1880, with the number of residents dramatically increasing following relaxed immigration policies between the U.S. and Japan throughout the 1880s. Eventually, the Japantown neighborhood was formed. Japan even opened a consulate in Tacoma in 1895. Immigration numbers grew up until the 1920s when quotas were implemented by the number of Japanese immigrants allowed entry into the U.S. By then, first and second generation Japanese immigrants had become merchants, barbers, and farmers as they settled into a life in the South Sound. Then, December 7, 1941, changed everything. In the immediate aftermath of Pearl Harbor, Japanese American citizens found themselves the targets of intensified suspicion and discrimination. The Tacoma News Tribune of the time was full of stories about swelling membership in anti-Japanese organizations. On February 19, 1942, President Franklin D. Roosevelt issued Executive Order 9066, which paved the way for the mass incarceration of Japanese American citizens up and down the West Coast. Tacoma's Japantown was decimated as residents were sent off to internment camps, many to Camp Tule Lake in California. Okay, hello. Um, let's see. All right, I'm going to start by asking you both to share a little bit about yourselves. Um, and I don't know if you want to start with the oldest sibling first or the youngest, youngest sibling first, but... Oldest sibling? All right. Marilee's pointing to you, Greg. Oh, they gave me up already. I'm I'm Greg Tambera. Um, right now, I work for the Tacoma Pierce County Health Department. I've, uh, let's see, for the purpose of this podcast, I have lived almost all my life in the city of Tacoma. Grew up here. I'm what they uh, call a sansei, third generation um, Japanese American. Uh, my mother and father uh, were born here. They're called Niseis. And my grandparents or Issei's, or first generation. And um, so that's kind of why I'm here, I think. All right. And I'm Marilee Tambera. I uh, work for Tacoma Public Schools uh, for Healthcare Careers Academy. And like my brother, I've lived here most of my life. Uh, I did leave for a little bit, but it's been great coming back and hearing uh, people talk about their connection to our family. Yeah. Uh, thank you both for being here. And I'll briefly say that one of my favorite things about Tacoma is leaving and then coming back after having been gone. It always gives me like a fresh perspective and it always really makes me appreciate our little town that, uh, you know, is often overlooked. <laughs> so 
So uh, again, welcome. Let's dive right in. Um, can you both start by telling us a bit about your parents' life prior to 1942? Well, I, t- I tell you what, I, I will tell you some of the things that uh, um, I remember that uh, my mother told me because she she grew up in Tacoma. She was born in Tacoma, um, spent all of her youth here and, of course, all of her adult life here. But she uh, was born in 1924. And her the things that that she always told me was that uh, uh, she remembers those days before the uh, Second World War as being wonderful years and uh, Tacoma being a good place to grow up. She had lots of friends. In fact, those friends, she kept many of those friends uh, up until uh, throughout her life. So she stayed in contact with those people. Um, I think life in Tacoma for them was very different in the uh, 20s, 30s, and early 40s. Um, we are down here at uh, in a studio that's right on the uh, on kind of the edge of what was known as uh, Japantown or Nihonmachi. And so there were like a thousand Japanese uh, living down here, many of them families, businesses, that sort of thing. And uh, my mom used to tell us stories about wandering around downtown, having to walk up and down those hills uh, with childhood friends and having uh, a great time and um, growing up in this town. So, Yeah, so to um, go a little farther about what my brother said, so they were members of the Tacoma Buddhist Temple, and that really became kind of the hub for those who were Buddhist. Um, it not only served religious purposes, but it also was a place for where they experienced their culture. So they had, and I found this out later, not through so much our mother's stories, but they had a haiku, they had haiku clubs. Um, they would perform plays. So my brother was mentioning the Issei, and they didn't speak, a lot of them didn't speak English. So they couldn't go to the movies and things like that. So it really, the temple became a place for everything, all their socializing, their entertainment and such. So her life and her family's life really centered around that. And then they had a business on Court C, which is funny because it's right here where the studio is. Um, They were next to the Crystal Palace and it was a wholesale dry cleaning plant. And so our grandfather, like many of the Issei, worked, you know, very difficult jobs, saved their money, and then were able to, some of them opened their own business. So, um, yeah, her life really did, all of her friends were here, and she went to Central um, School, which was an elementary. My brother went there, too. Then McCarver at the time was a middle school. That's where she went. And then she went to Stadium High School where most of the girls went, but then the boys went to Lincoln because they had shop and things like that. Because even if the boys were educated, they weren't able to get uh, higher level jobs. Well, um, I, I also went to Stadium, so go Tigers. Um, no, that's really... Uh, I always find it so interesting, you know, and I appreciate the history of knowing like where we're sitting now and what it used to be um, because it just gives this perspective of like how often, um, 
you know, with with the growth of a place that history kind of gets layered over and painted over and um, people get displaced. And obviously we're going to talk more about that. And um, yeah, and it's just it's very it always kind of brings me back and kind of grounds me to know and to be reminded like, hey, you know, like this hasn't always been this space. This has been something else. You're standing on top of history. So it's it's very um, I'm appreciative. Thank you both for sharing that. You're um, welcome. Can we talk a little bit more about how things changed? Um, and like as 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 America entered World War II, can you talk about, um, yeah, just what life started to look like and how things started to change for your family? Well, our grandfather had passed away um, a few months before um, the attack of Pearl Harbor, but with other, he was a leader in the community. And after Pearl Harbor, many of the leaders, the ministers, people, business owners, um, people that were the head of different associations got rounded up by the FBI. And so what that looked like is if you're a family and there's a knock on the door, there's probably two FBI agents that come in to your house. You don't know why they're there. Um, They searched your home um, and you just had to watch them do this. You didn't really do anything wrong. And then they take the father away. They don't tell um, the family where they're taking the father for how long. So that was one of the, probably one of the biggest things that happened right after the attack on Pearl Harbor. I think one of the things that I remember my mother uh, telling me is uh, she heard about the attack on on Pearl Harbor somewhere and was wondering what that would mean. And, uh, you know, as Marilee was saying, uh, the FBI began um, gathering up people that that were uh, business owners and and community leaders and teachers and uh, professional people, um, and uh, and uh, imprison them in in federal insta- uh, installations. I think the other thing too that that happened was there was a travel restriction and a curfew that was implemented right away also, and radios, guns, and uh, cameras were confiscated. Mm. And uh, so, so this must have been, uh, it was, I'm sure that was very shocking. Um, but, you know, it was war and people probably did not know what to expect. Um, they probably didn't accept this as a fair thing to do, but they could see um, maybe what the logic behind it was. Because at that time, uh, I think the United States was uh, thinking that, and, and many people, in Tacoma, as well as other places, thought that anybody with a Japanese face was the enemy. And uh, that was really unfortunate. And I think that that's one of the things that uh, I try and keep in mind and remind people because um, that happens now at the same time. Um, What somebody looks like and the assumptions you make um, sometimes just make them the enemy right away. And that's not a good thing for us. No, you're right. And it, it happens so often throughout history. And, and until, I don't know, there's changes of hearts and ideologies, you know, it's it's this thing that's going to keep happening and it's going to keep 
having disastrous consequences. Yeah. So, um, so can you uh, can you tell us a bit about the memories and experiences that um, either your family or or other folks that you've spoken to um, that they had during incarceration? Well, I'll go first here. Um, I, uh, as many people know, the uh, the Tacoma community was uh, evacuated from Tacoma on uh, May 16th and 17th, 1942. As I recall, my mother telling me, she said that uh, she remembers them getting very short notice. And so if you can imagine this, and I, I was trying to imagine this on the way down to the studio here. You have a home, and many many people have lived had lived in Tacoma for for many years. I mean, sometimes as long as twenty. I think my my mother's family had been there for at least twenty years. And you have a business, you have a home, you have furniture, you have personal possessions, clothing, so on and so forth, and you have to liquidate everything because you don't know where you're going and whether you ever are going to return or not. I mean, those are just not known. So um, they had, you know, maybe only a couple weeks to make arrangements for somebody to take care of their home if they had a home or to sell all their their belongings. Uh, People were selling cars and uh, furniture very quickly and and, um, people were buying it up because it was, uh, they were taking what what they could get. Um, So there was that. Excuse me. They uh, had to register at the Japanese language school. So everybody was required to uh, be registered at the uh, Japanese language school, which is on uh, near the intersection of 17th and Tacoma Avenue. So that school had served as uh, oh, a place where, where my mother and, uh, and her contemporaries learned Japanese language, how to read, write, and a lot of the cultural things. So um, folks were brought there, um, information was taken on them. They received a, um, a number and that number, uh, they were going to be required to wear when they were evacuated. So they ended up assembling, uh, down near the, uh, Union Station on Pacific Avenue, which is not very far from the studio here. And they left on a train. Um, they, many of them did not know where they were headed. They ended up going to, uh, Pinedale, California. But uh, as they were leaving, I remember my mom saying that the windows were were covered over. So they could not see where they were going. And so they left Tacoma that way and uh, ended up in Pinedale. My father um, ended up in an assembly center at the uh, Santa Anita racetracks. He was living uh, in Los Angeles at that time with uh, his mother and his sister. And so uh, I remember him saying that they stayed in the horse stalls there for several months while uh, the relocation centers were, were, uh, were uh, being constructed. So those are some of the, the, some, some of the things that uh, I recall um, my parents sharing. Um, things happened very quickly. Um, the question of whether it was fair or right, um, I'm sure was on their mind. But uh, I don't think they felt like they had the power to do anything about it because uh, when they when they were assembled uh, down at the Union Station, uh, you'll see in in uh, some of the photographs there are armed uh, U.S. military personnel there to make sure that everything went right. And so, uh, yeah, so those are some of the things that I recall. Yeah, my brother's talking about the registration. It was pretty 
tricky maneuver, honestly, about how the government does that. And they say with all of these types of mass incarceration, there's always a registration process. And so my our mother and our aunts trying to be the good citizens they are, and they don't understand the implication of registration, you know, the government asks community members to help with the registration because they're going to be very thorough. They're going to know. And then, you know, they're a trusting face. So that's how that kind of happened. And I think, you know, once um, our mother and our aunties realized really what that was about, felt really terrible that they participated in that registration so, yeah, my brother talked about people having to abandon their things. Um, they said it was a sale like pennies on the dollar. And so I think about people that had very hard manual labor jobs, you know, um, in the lumber mills. We know a family friend that would shuck oysters, saving all of that money and then probably feeling so much pride, like I now own a car or I own dishes and pots and pans and things like that, you know, furniture. And then it just all, you're just having to abandon it. So I'm writing a book right now and I've been interviewing our family friend and their fa- their grandfather was taken away. And so that left the, the grandmother with three children she doesn't speak English. And so I asked, what happened to your stuff? And she had so much to do prior to leaving um, for the Pinedale Assembly Center that what this, I was interviewing um, one of the family members and they said that what they remember is that their house is full of things. They just shut the door and walked to Union Station. I can't even imagine. And so if you have a business also, you know, you have to pay rent um, and you can't continue to pay rent on things because you're incarcerated. So I think for me, like what's been just really interesting is, you know, doing the research for this book. And the book is about what was Tacoma like in the Japanese community prior to the war? What was incarceration like and what was it like coming back? Um I think what's been interesting for me is, you know, our mother shared a narrative to us and I believed for, you know, probably just up until recently that that was the complete narrative. I mean, you know, so then now that I'm doing more research about what was Pinedale like, it's shocking to me. They had for toilets, they had um, just like plywood with, you know, holes cut in it, maybe five or six holes, no partition. And that's how you had to go to the bathroom. People got sick from the food. And so they, they, I've heard these many stories at a lot of the camps where, you know, it's in the middle of the night and all of a sudden you have a case of diarrhea, you're running, you can't, there's no bathrooms in the barracks. You have to go to the latrine. I don't know how far away that is. You arrive there and there's a line to use the bathroom. So I just, you know, our mother never talked about those kinds of stories. Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry. Do you, do you think she, why do you think that is? Why do you, is, do you think that was too hard? Do you think it was um, in her mind just 
kind of part of the experience that she just kind of tucked away or, um, or, or do you not have any speculation about it? it just... I think that's a wonderful question you ask and one that I've been asking myself a lot. Um, and my brother may have some thoughts about that as well. Um, I feel that she just always was the type of person that, you know, looked at the brighter side of life. And I think it was very shameful and humiliating. And I think, you know, I think she wanted to raise us with the belief that, you know, we're American citizens and we're good American citizens. And I think it's really difficult when you have those feelings of wanting to belong and doing the right thing when your oppressor is the very thing that you're trying to honor. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's it I think it gets really complicated in your mind. Um, but I know that she always wanted us to be good citizens. So how do you do that? I don't know. Yeah. Greg, do you have any thoughts around that? Yeah, I um uh, <clears throat> I think that was very much where where mom was coming from. She uh she was an optimistic person. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that you gotta be an optimist in order to be able to come out of an experience like that. Um with with a sense of a sense of hope, um, I think that the other thing that that really, uh, as I reflect back on on uh, on my um, mother Kimi and and father George, you know, I was I, I grew up um, was in Tacoma by 1955, and if you think about it for a second, 1955 is only 10 years mm -hmm. since the end of uh, World War II. Yeah, that's less time than the time that has spanned since 9-11 uh, for us. And there are vivid memories there. Um, <clears throat> and so I think that that uh, one of the things is I reflect back on kind of how those stories came to me and uh, how they were, uh, the, the environment that they were trying to raise, myself as well as my three sisters, was it's really important you get along. And you kind of keep your head down yeah. because bad stuff can happen. Um, really bad stuff can happen if, uh, if folks start focusing on you in the wrong way. And so that, uh, and, and, you know, uh, frankly, the uh, number of uh, people returning to Tacoma that were in the Japanese community before World War II was, there were not very many of them because it was just really hard here. Um, West Coast City, uh, as as you probably as many people know, uh, Tacoma had excuse me had had a history of uh, focusing on uh, people of Asian descent. Uh, there was the uh, expulsion of the Chinese in 1885. That that was sheriff and mayor and in the major institutions, um, and uh, that was the same thing with uh, World War II. So I appreciate the. Uh, sentiment that you, you, Greg, you probably should keep your head down. Yeah. And, uh, they, you know, they didn't tell me that, uh, overtly, but, uh, yeah, that was, that was kind of the feeling I had was I felt really good about, uh, about being part of our family, that, uh, there were many things that I really loved about my mom and father's Japanese-ness and my grandmother's Japanese-ness. But, um, I kept that in the family and, and at the church and in the Japanese community because it just felt like sometimes it might be dangerous outside of that, outside of that community. 
Yeah, and it's weird when I think about the way we grew up. So I worked with students who were Southeast Asian later on in my life, and they made a comment to me and said, why do you talk so white? And, you know, I remember growing up and I asked my mom about where are the Chinese in Tacoma? And like my brother was saying, they were expelled. And that, to even to this day, you won't find generational Chinese people here. And I remember our family went to San Francisco and they had a Japantown. And I remember it feeling so weird, but I think now reflecting back, it was like, I was probably wondering why isn't there a Japantown here? Why isn't there a Chinatown here? We're a West Coast city. So we grew up in a very white community and thus we talk the way that we talk. And, you know, just growing up that way, you don't really question that much because that's just the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, you know, um, and then there was just a really strong pull for assimilation. You know, probably our parents wanted us to be safe. So assimilation seemed like a good route. Yeah. And, I, you know, I can I can definitely identify with that in the sense that, you know, there when you grow up and you're a person of color and 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 you have an identity that people have tended to marginalize and oppress um you do. You 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 don't have to be told overtly. You you watch. You learn. You take note because you know that if you're not, you know, on code in a sense in the way that this world wants you to be, it could have life and death consequences for you. So, um, and and you know, like there are plenty of studies that show that that trauma gets passed down in our mm-hmm. DNA. So there's a lot of it that is just intrinsic sometimes, and um, you know you. It's it's one of those things that is an unfortunate part of existing um, as part of a community that has been othered, and um, yeah. So it's I can I can only imagine the um, the fear of of being back here, of of having your family here, of um, letting them go out into the world, and and having to hope that they come back to you. So Yeah, and it showed up in a really interesting way. We just felt like maybe overparenting, but now I'm kind of wondering if it was more related to maybe the racism that they experienced growing up here in the incarceration. But just things like my our mom just always seemed worried about us. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of just this low-level, what I felt, I don't know if Greg felt this way, anxiety about our well-being and then there was the anxiety about, are we dressed right? Are, is our hair right? You know, things like that. Like I remember, and it was kind of the times too, but we had to dress up to go to the airport. We had to dress a certain way to go to the mall. You know, she didn't like us wearing tattered jeans, you know, just trying to be that upstanding citizen again. Yeah. Did you want to add anything? Well, I had, you know, you, you opened our, our get together here with the, um, experience of returning to Tacoma. And, uh, I just thought of, uh, how, how, uh, that, how that might've been for my, my mother and my mother leaves, uh, the city, uh, via that train to Pinedale and then comes back after, uh, after the, um, um, after the, uh, 
oh, I can't remember what they call it, the, uh, that after the restrictions on, on Japanese mm-hmm. are lifted, but that's before World War II. So in her case, it's a really hard stop. It's a hard stop, no more Japanese community, and it's a hard stop. You come back, and, uh, and the war with Japan is still going on. And uh, you're supposed to do okay and pick up where you left off. It's, it's uh, yeah, it made me think about that hard stop and hard, hard start. Yeah. 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 And to expand on that, I mean, writing this book, it's given me the opportunity to really slow down my thinking about what the experience might have been like. So, you know, my brother talked about, you know, them lifting the restriction on the West Coast. So she went from, she, got into a university to leave camp. Then she's taking a train back to Tacoma. This is her first time back in more than three years. She sees Mount Rainier and she bursts into tears. And she tells that story and she's like, I was so surprised that, I mean, she doesn't seem sad or anything. She's like, oh, I was just so surprised I burst into tears. And it was interesting because I heard, um, I was reading a similar story that someone from Oregon saw the, Hood River and had the exact same experience. Mm -hmm. But I think what she didn't share, at least with me, I don't know if she did with my brother, is what is it like to come back to a city with lots of Japanese shops? You know, they had, um, you know, homemade tofu shops and they had confectionery shops and hotels and all kinds of businesses to come back and you have this strong desire to come home and home doesn't look like home anymore. Your neighborhood is now rented to other people that you don't even recognize. You keep thinking your, your friends are going to come back and they don't come back. They stay in the Midwest, which was completely uh, designed that way by the government that they wanted them to be in the Midwest. They didn't want Japanese back on the West Coast. So how does that feel to be back? Your friends aren't here. Your community is not here. I think it was like one eighth of the community came back. So I think that would be really hard. So I wrote a story about that in Grit City magazine and um, they were really helpful in getting that done, but just trying to examine that experience. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like there's there's a lot to unpack there in the in the sense of like, um, you know, I, I chose to go off to college and leave Tacoma and then I chose to come back. And um, though things changed for the most part, the things that I was excited to come back to were still here. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, 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 you know, it's the, there's just a real sadness and, you know, you talked about, is it fair, is it right? And it, it, it it's so unfair there's such an unfairness to just being ripped from your life and then coming back just to realize that life kept going on without you and it makes you wonder you know were are people upset about this did do people realize what was taken from their community um how did you know i just imagine coming back to such uncertainty of like if if this community could allow this to happen to me as a part of this community, what does that mean now that I'm back? So um, yeah, I can I can just imagine. And I want to just say I really and and Greg is friends with him. He wrote the forward to a book called Becoming Nisei and Mary Hanneman and 
um, I'm forgetting Lisa Hoffman. Lisa Hoffman did a wonderful job um, flying all over the country to find the second generation Japanese to share their stories about what that life was like before the war. And so you get more of a richness of what the community used to be like. But yeah, they fa faced, our family faced a lot of difficulty. We had a family business. It was dry cleaning and people wouldn't sell them the, the fluid. They came back to um, their place and all the equipment was gone. There were people picketing outside. But those experiences are terrible, but then it also gives opportunity for really wonderful things to happen too. So there was a Catholic man that helped our family out. So, you know, it's, a, it's all these mixed things. That brings us to the end of part one. Be sure to come back for the conclusion of our conversation with Mara Lee and Greg Tambara about Japanese incarceration during World War II and the Japanese experience in Tacoma at that time. Available to download wherever you find your podcasts. This program was brought to you by On Purpose Recordings. Created and produced by Chris Blunt. Mixed and edited by Joff Gibbs.